if you haven't updated your communication model since you were 22 when you met or 24, 25, and now you're 30, 34, 35 having kids, that's 10 years where everything else around you has grown up. All of the things that you're doing and all the roles you're performing have grown up, but the way you speak to each other is still like 23-year-olds, right? So before you were doing any work on yourself, before you were even thinking about that stuff. So how much each couple needs to be having sex is very unique to them. And I think that, like, I will give you some numbers. People who have sex once a week are having a lot of sex as married couples with kids. the new mamas podcast this podcast was created to help first-time moms everywhere navigate this new stage of life and to talk about the honest and the raw moments in motherhood i'm your host lena forrestal i'm a working mom by day and a blogger and photographer by mid-afternoon and as a first-time mom myself i'm on this journey with you so new mamas let's do it Let's kick off the episode and get to the good stuff. Hey, everyone. This week, I'm excited to talk to Sarah Lyon about everything relationships after baby. So that's everything from partner communication, navigating sex as parents, and co-parenting do's and don'ts. Sarah Lyon is a birthing expert, founder of Glow Birth and Body, author of The Birth Deck, and coming May 25th, which is right around the corner, author of the book, You Got This, Your Guide to Getting Comfortable with Labor. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. It's a real honor, Lena. I am so excited that you invited me on. Yeah. So let's start off with your motherhood journey. Like you have a very cool resume and I'm so excited to learn more about you. But yeah, let's start there. I had my first child at 30. I had been married for five years. I've been with my now ex-husband, spoiler alert, for 10 years at that point, almost 10 years, nine years. And um, we were very excited to have a baby. We planned it. I had, you know, both of our careers were booming and it was great. We owned our house, all the things that one does when one is ticking the boxes off of the traditional trajectory to becoming parents. And I had been a birth worker already for 10 years at that time. And it was, it was luckily my birth experience was very typical. 24-hour labor for first labor is very typical. And, you know, I had all the typical things. My There was meconium in the water. My labor stalled at nine centimeters for two hours. You know, these things are actually really common things that happen. And I, I pushed for three hours. Again, very common for a first-time mom. Now, I did have my babies at home, which is a little bit different than how a lot of people come into their parenthood um, at birth. But that was also really normal for me. And based on the amount of experience I had and research that I have done and living overseas where home birth is really normal, that was for me the most comfortable place. That was sort of the safest place for me to have a baby. When I was 12 weeks postpartum, my ex and I split up super, super suddenly. And that was not ideal. It was 
relatively traumatic to say the least. And I've had a life of very little trauma. So it was really, it was intense, you know, and it still has its little claws in me sometimes when I least expect it, it'll come up, which is not ideal, but therapy's a delight. And I recommend it to everybody, which we'll talk more about as we go through this episode. So yeah, so we split up and then um, my current husband and I met when my, our now oldest, so my, my first child, who is now seven and a half, we, my new husband and I got together when she was 14 months old. And that relationship was ideal because she, so he was living in New York City. I was living in California. My daughter and I were living in California. That gave me, it was so fresh. My divorce was still so fresh because keep in mind, that was only about nine months later after my separation. And I mean, I wasn't even legally divorced yet. So I was able to do a lot of healing without him present. And it, it wasn't possible to dive into the relationship and all of a sudden replace this other, you know, this hole um, that had been created. And I, it wasn't a hole. I was able to be totally complete in my reality at that time. So my motherhood journey into motherhood was really different, but I, yeah, I had to be really independent. I figured it out and I'm better for that for sure. Yeah. Wow. That's quite the story, but thank you so much for sharing it and being so vulnerable. It's it's honestly the reality for so many women that go through that. I, I had a young woman on my, one of my earlier podcasts where she experienced infidelity in shortly after birth of her second child. And this that's what's real. Like this is this is real life that doesn't make it onto your Instagram. I really do think seeing other couples on social media sometimes can affect how we feel because you all you see on Instagram are these happy, smiling family photos. We don't often see because, of course, like, how are you going to share that, like, you're bickering every day or you're fighting or the challenges that you're going through as a couple. But what that does is it makes it feel like it's not normal. And I've I've been open like in a lot of my mom groups of like, yeah, my husband and I got into a screaming match today. And they say, oh, wow, thank you so much for sharing because we would have never known. I'm like, yeah, that's normal. Like this is I mean, not that like fighting is a it's a normal thing that happens in relationships. So it's a very messy process. Transition of any kind is very messy. And American psychology has this term developmental crisis. Mm -hmm. So if you're familiar with the term developmental crisis, it is a, a predictable, it's an anticipated, common, we can call it normal crisis of transition that occurs. And if you don't face these crises in succession as they come, then it will only make the next one worse. So the unresolved issues of one transition will then bleed into the next one. So you can kind of patch it for a while as you move into your new phase of your normal days. But when you get to that next transition, all of those things will rear their heads. And that actually even will start at toddlerhood. So the way that we are developing as humans and the way we're developing our communication and coping styles around that starts to then bleed into later transitions. And even though I had somewhat unique circumstances because my marriage split up very suddenly. Usually I always say to people, if you meet a woman who has a baby and she's split up with her ex-husband, that wasn't just because he cheated. That wasn't just because he was, you know, a jerk or wasn't pulling his weight or whatever. That's because something really monumental happened and she didn't have another choice because who would do that if you've ever been postpartum? That's like, you can just last through moderate to like high grade misery for a long time, at least two years before you're like, okay, cool. Now I can like be fully back in the work game. I'm probably no longer breastfeeding. Like I can do my thing. 
So even though the, it was unique in some ways, it's uncommon how my marriage split up, what is very common about that story is the revelation of deep neuroses and coping mechanisms that resurface, right, around these developmental crises and birth. There's nothing like the birth of a first child for both partners, the birth partner and her support partner, who are her, you know, domestic and life partner. They both will have resurfacing insecurities, the perpetuation of roles that you've seen played out all around you, particularly in your parents' marriage. So you start to, you're living and you're relating and then you're eventually parenting in reaction to or as a, as a reflection of the relationships that have shaped you. Yeah, I just got like, I just got chills when you were saying, especially, you know, the first part about to split a relationship in the newborn phase, which is so chaotic and messy. Exactly. It's something that's really devastating because with no other options. If that, if you meet a mom with a, a small baby, yes. she has either had to make the hardest choice of her life or she wasn't given a choice and it was foisted upon her. And so just as like a little PSA, whenever you meet people, it's just this old adage, but you don't know what they're going through at that time. And so if you meet someone, even if they seem like together and whatever, if you learn certain things about them, this is one of those where you, that is a red flag that they need more support and that they need extra compassion and care. And it's, it's hard, you know, you as being born into this world as a woman or someone who identifies as a woman, it means that you are going to be facing already challenges, you know, like that you are already marginalized. And the intersectionality of ethnic heritage, of religious identification, and how that can further marginalize people should only engender more compassion and support from us because the cards are already stacked against you. Yes. And it just really feel like the birth and maternity system is not built with women in mind, especially even just the idea of you give birth and then just the concept of maternity leave. Women have to fight tooth and nail to get the maternity leave that they need. Not uh, not even about that they want. It's not about want. It's that they need. Because especially the new, like I, I went back to work after six weeks. I only had six weeks for my company and it was during COVID. So I was at home juggling this newborn in a full-time job. The system is not built for me in mind. And I, I even said straight to my HR and I was like, I will tell the CEO this, that you should be ashamed of this policy. Like this is shameful. And I, I was vocal about it on social media. I really didn't care if the CEO, I would say it to their face, not the company I'm at now, but my previous company. And yeah, you would say it to their face because in the yeah. end, if you, if you are in your postpartum rage zone, which is a very real zone, yes. then you kind of give zero Fs about any of it, yep. right? You're, you're there for what this process is bringing and you have, there are all these hormones ignited in your body that are there for the protection of you and your baby and anyone who's going to get in the way, it's it's like borderline irrational, except when you think about it, it's in fact the most rational thing. Yeah. We keep the but species alive. For that. Mm -hmm. Without that postpartum rage, a lot of these men who built the system wouldn't be here. Just saying. Like someone kept them alive at birth and it was most likely a woman. So it's uh you bring out absolutely a great point. And you do I remember 
not knowing what was real and what was not real during that stage because I I suffered with really intense postpartum anxiety of just I felt like if someone breathed on my son and he would die like it would just I I had such anxiety and at the time I honestly can tell you I don't know what was real and what wasn't like there was just this like this weird gray area I, I feel like I lived in a cloud of anxiety for many many months but exactly like the newborn stage can be such a beautiful but also simultaneously a tumultuous time in a couple's life So in your experience as a doula and birth educator, what do you recommend to first-time parents in navigating their relationship during the newborn stage? When you used the word gray zone, it makes me think of this term that I frequently use about labor that I learned from my first midwife, so my oldest child's midwife. And Leopi said, when she finally was retiring, she said, I just honestly, it's not even birth. It's not even being on call for birth. It's the murky time of postpartum that is so draining. Walking into a postpartum house where no one knows what's up and what's down. No one knows what time is it, what time it is. No one's showered anytime recently. Maybe they're eating. Maybe they're not. There's, there are dirty dishes. Like everything is, you know, the couple is, strung out and clueless and at each other's throats or super isolated from each other, alienated. And it's a time of really high anxiety for most people in America. And I really want to, I think it's very important to identify what we're talking about and where we're talking about, because this is not just natural. This is a product of a lack of support and of living frequently in diaspora. So We, because of globalization, we have the ability to live in these other cities, towns, and we have uh, evolved, a lot of us have evolved our families to not have those close-knit communities. People have to work, uh, grown-ups, you know, obviously parents having babies are grown-ups, but the grandparents oftentimes have to work until old age in order to be able to afford their health care and their their retirement, theoretical retirement, if they're ever going to get there, they can't afford to retire. So they can't be there helping during the day. So this lack of support based on our economy leads to this, this gap in care that will result in pandemic levels of postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. Okay, so I didn't answer your question. (laughs) No, but those are valid points. Yeah. So, so then, so then here's the, so if we understand that reality, what I recommend for first time parents as they navigate their relationship during the newborn stage is to number one, invest in prenatal preparation and, and education around new, around the newborn phase, around postpartum, reading books like the fourth trimester, understanding what it's going to be happening for mom, for the birth parent, hormonally, psychologically, what she is being wired to actually do because she's not being wired to be your partner, your wife. She's be, she is now for a limited but significant period of time going to be programmed only to care for herself and really just for that baby. So your job should you choose to procreate with a woman and cohabitate with her is to only be there to hold space, provide and care for her and not expect anything in return for like basically the entirety of the time she's breastfeeding. And if she's not breastfeeding, then probably for the first nine months. 
I think setting expectations is something that we absolutely do not educate both both parents on, at least in my in my experience. And and I, I feel like my husband and I are fairly privileged, right? We own our home. We both have jobs. Like we can afford certain luxuries. So I can only imagine the lack of, if I feel like there was a lack of education and I have privilege, I can't imagine what it's like in other communities and other moms who are going through the fourth trimester or pregnant and preparing for the first trimester. I also think that, again, not to bring social media into it. I love social media. love it. But I feel like sometimes there's, it almost wires our brain in a way to prepare for the wrong things. I feel like a lot of moms in pregnancy, and this was absolutely me as well, stress over things like the nursery or little clothing and stuff like that. And of course, like that stuff makes us feel good and it it is important. But there is such a lack of, hey, you should prepare to understand what your hormones are going to go through because that knowledge is power, right? If we know what's going on, if I knew, I knew about postpartum depression and that's all I knew. And I read I googled it and I was like I don't have any of these symptoms but I literally feel like someone is going to break into my house and steal my baby so but I didn't know about I honestly did not know postpartum anxiety was a thing I thought it was normal what I was feeling so I think that education exactly and and I want to get into all your your books too that you've written because I believe that they're a great resource for new moms but that I think what you mentioned was exactly right setting those expectations, especially with your partner. I completely agree with you. And it is ironic as a birth, primarily a birth educator and my writing, my writing published thus far in birth education. But really, I want people to understand that when you learn about postpartum, it will, if you start with postpartum, it will actually back you into present. So you'll get to birth and then you'll get to pregnancy, et cetera. So if you actually start with what is my childcare going to look like? Because for the modern American woman, she is going to probably have to work to help support her family. And she then is going to be anxious. It backs you into postpartum and then into labor because those are the hurdles. Anytime you have a uh, an anxiety moment, or we won't even call it anxiety because that sounds clinical, but a moment of faltering trust. You have a moment of fear, of insecurity in postpartum or in labor that will be magnified. Those hormones then impact your physical response in postpartum that can impact your lactation and your bonding. It can impact your mood, which also includes anxiety. In labor, if you're having insecurities around how you're going to care for your child, yourself, financial insecurities, who's going to care for your baby? Are you going to be able to balance it all, et cetera? Is your partner going to take care of you? And that is not just financially, that is not just physically, that can also be mentally and emotionally, right? When you start to to question those things in labor, those things will come up. So when I say, okay, when people say like, what's the number one thing I can do to prepare for labor? I say, work on the communication with your partner and consider what your postpartum plan is. And that is going to then put you back into labor. And of course, I'm in a conversation with them, right? So it's also about understanding what the birth process looks like. What are these hormones? But it's all part and parcel of one continuous experience that is all the transition to parenthood. So that that is definitely the core of what all of my writing does too. It's for support teams and for couples. It's 
for people understanding how to support uh, women who are in this process. It's not just about like, where is your uterus? It is more about why, what, why do we do this? Why does it look and feel this way? And what can we do to optimize around those hormones that are needing to be so perfectly synchronized to make this process work well? Absolutely. And I love how you mentioned almost starting backwards. I never thought about it that way. Thinking about your postpartum care and then backtracking into birth and then pregnancy. I think often we get so stuck in the pregnancy phases that we, and especially around, you know, the later stages of pregnancy, like in the beginning, you're all obsessed with the apps. And in the later stages, you're like, eh, whatever. They're the size of a watermelon or whatever. I don't even care anymore. Right? Like you're just so tired that I feel like, and also the last stages of pregnancy, you are so tired and you're in pain that you might not even have the mental load, the mental space to be able to bear the load of, oh, and postpartum. I'm not, I'm sure a lot of moms do this. Uh, we'll just figure it out. That's where disaster happens. In your perspective, how do you think relationships change after having a baby? If that is anticipated again, same as we talked about for, you know, anticipating how the hormones are going to impact the birth parent, maybe the birth parent, maybe she's going to at least have more context for the experience she's having. So it doesn't feel quite as pathological. And so that when she recognizes it, she can get it treated pre in a preclinical stage. So before it's gotten to the point that you know, it needs medication or whatever is going to be the intervention. And and I just want to caveat all this to say that it might sound extreme to people who haven't had kids or haven't had really open, vulnerable relationships with other women, but this is actually really common. So don't think that this happens to like this margin, this crazy margin at the top. This is a lot of people. So a relationship changes after baby because it becomes, it can become almost like a partnership, like a business partnership. So it becomes about the operation of a household, about the handling and the management of another entity, your child. And that child for a period of time of like three years is going to need you to be at their beck and call. Yeah. I can definitely see that. When you enter into that different kind of dynamic with your partner, when prior to that, you were social, you had freedom, you could both go and do your own things and then come back in to your own household together. And as the very famous Esther Perel says, foreplay starts from the last time you had sex. You're imagining each other, what you're doing during the day. And so focusing on your own development and on what you're doing can be really attractive to your partner, right? In a really healthy relationship. So postpartum, what is mom doing, right? And parenthood, what is she doing during that phase? She is necessarily recovering and focusing on this little person, right? So it is important for the couple to really decide what their dynamic is going to be like in parenthood and relationship to their child after the postpartum phase is over. And something that I observe, so I'm 38, I've been doing this for 15, 16 years, really full time. And so working with families around this transition, I've seen this shift over those 15 years in the ways that parenting is sort of performed. Mm -hmm. And now what I notice is that there's this massive, for millennials, this massive focus on intentional, mindful, 
you know, positive parenting, affirmative parenting, shaping behavior through affirmative language, et cetera. But the other thing that happens when you're thinking that much and you're trying so hard to do it in this specific way is that you start to forget that there are other communication styles that you and your partner have that you also need to uphold that need to be of paramount importance, right? Because if you're going to talk that way to your child, you can't then turn and talk to each other in a different way and think that that isn't going to be caught by your child, right? Mind blown. That's so true. And that literally going, I mean, Archie's still too young to like really under, like, I'm not really saying no yet. Like my son is nine months old, so he's not really there, but definitely like my husband and I had an argument the other day and it was like, not, I was like, not in front of Archie. Like, let's not, I don't want to argue in front of him, but we had no choice because we were like in the heat of the moment. And it's true. Like, why isn't the word, why aren't the words consistent? They should be consistent to everyone, all equal. Not, I turn around and scream at him, but then I'm like, but then to my child, I'm like, oh, it's okay. You have big emotions. That's fine. And then I turn around and like, you're an asshole. Like, I I mean, totally. And it cuts both ways because also it's okay. Your child also can, you know, like, sack up and do better. Like also it's okay to have expectations of your child that are higher than what you think they can achieve. And it's also, it's like a first time parent thing. It's uh, old, older air quotes, whatever that means for your community. We're all sort of having babies later now. It's the fact that we've had time to think about it. And then we've thought a lot about it and then we've overthought it and then we've read about it and then blah, blah. And it's like (laughs) at a certain point, like you have to remember that the foundation of your child's life is your relationship with your partner and the household and the tenor of that household. So if you're going to work on like how you're going to parent your kid and talk to your kid, let's, we'll get there. How about we work first on what's happening in the backstory, which is the two of you. Can you tell my mind is blown right now? You've like left <laughs> I mean, me I'm, speechless. I will talk forever. So you don't need to worry. About By the way, I love <laughs> Esther Perel. Do you listen to her podcast, uh, Where Should We Begin? So good. It's so good. She so It's good. so right on because it's so real. And I, I. I educate about birth from a similar perspective, which is really kind of like a evolutionary and a biological imperative perspective. Like, you know, of course, like that's the other thing. How do relationships change after you have a baby? It's so new that we're monogamous. It's so new that dudes are anywhere near us postpartum. You know, Mm. like this is like they used to drop in impregnate a bunch of people go out and hunt or go to war and we weren't even really sure who the daddy was that's why in the jewish lineage the woman the the bloodline and the tracing of the ethnicity is through the the matrilineage because you couldn't be sure who the dad was because there was so much like since the dawn of time like raping and pillaging and just whatever so we can't have this like fantasy version of something but then still actually be animals that's what we are right so until we understand the roots of that and can have forgiveness for ourselves and our relationships and then help to like shape our relationships around that it, of course you want your partner to get out of your face you all you want is a wife you know what I mean? All you want is five wives after you have a baby to come over and do everything that you would do for yourself if you had three of you, right? So that's real. Huh. I mean, it's just if you had that community, it would be so great. Like it is we definitely definitely what we're doing 
today in America, like you said, like I'm, my um, my parents are from Brazil and the communities there are a lot tighter. Families all live in the same area. There's a lot of help and a lot of community here. My in-laws live 45 minutes away. My parents live 16 hours away and we're alone here no matter how you I mean I'm I'm literally alone I live on a farm like pretty rural but exactly like this is un I know I feel it in my soul that it is unnatural like it is unnatural it's just me and my son all day it's just insane it's insane and when you're talking I can feel it in my adrenal glands and I can feel it in like the pit of my stomach and I'm in the same circumstance. I'm not like, oh, because I feel so sorry for you. It's because when you say it, my parents lived with me for, my mom lived with me for two years and my dad was there like half the time because he, they, my mom moved in with me after I split up with my ex. So I had a wife. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Oh my gosh. We all, if only we all had a wife. Okay. She was, it was a dream come true. I didn't have to think about a single thing except building my career so that I could support my family because I wasn't going to get child. So I didn't want child support. And she just encouraged me to do that and to go and nurture what I needed to nurture in order to build my power to actualize my potential and keep my family safe. Like what? Oh yeah. That's what we all do for our partners. What the hell? You know what I mean? My mom, Mom. my mom's uh, lived she moved in with me with us for four weeks and i was you would think that's a lot of time i was devastated when she she left she's like i gotta go back to my own life i'm like please i I, there was a point where i even like offered her i was like i will literally pay you to stay like what can i do because exactly cooked healthy meals made sure i was fed i could shower it was just It was just even the little things that were so insanely helpful. That's so great that your mom moved in with you. I mean, she saved my life, not and not like in an overly dramatic way. I mean, more like she brought my life very quickly back to the point of thriving. Whereas if I hadn't had that support, the privilege of that support, we would I I I don't know. It would just I wouldn't be where I am right now, Mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally, financially professionally, romantically, and every single quadrant, every single capacity in my life. So supports everything postpartum, you know? So something you mentioned was around communication. And I loved, I when I was writing up my questions, I wrote, a lot of experts will encourage couples, but like you literally encourage couples to communicate during the newborn stage. And here's here's my story. So I probably, like a lot of women, over-communicate my needs and my husband bottles his up in the newborn stage i was kind of surprised he kind of disappeared from his responsibilities as a dad i mean he helped out around the house he did chores he did laundry he was super super helpful in those regards but when it came to caring for our son i felt so disappointed because i felt like i was on my own and to this day I mean, nine months has gone by. We haven't had a chance to see a therapist or a counselor just to kind of unpack what happened during that. But to this day, I'm not sure why that happened. Maybe he was shocked. Maybe he was stressed. Maybe it was me in my postpartum anxiety not quite trusting him with the baby. What do you think, as a as a birthing expert, what do you think we could have done better as a couple to prepare for some of our communication challenges? 
first of all, this is such a common dynamic that you're expressing. Now, if you were to layer that, let's think about his experience, which you've already started to do, which is why you guys have a great partnership, right? Because you're both, and I presume he is too, you know, here you are, you know, 8 p.m. at night on the East Coast, you're recording, he's in the background doing a thing, like clearly he's a great partner, right? And in, so so you guys are clearly trying to meet each other's needs and be flexible with each other. Mm, now consider what's happening. You had maybe nine months ago. Hmm. Nine months ago, we were in the throes of a pandemic. Everything was like burning down literally in the following month. And you have a partner who is of the male persuasion, biologically male, and he identifies male. Mm-hmm. And his brain is wired to serve and protect, but not serve your emotional needs, to serve in a material capacity. So his job is to like think of him like circling the village, circling the tent, making sure that we've got the fire lit, that like all of the primary material needs are met. And that's the, the adrenaline and the cortisol that's firing in him, just like if, even if it, in, in Judaism, we have the term dayenu. Like, that would be enough. Just having a new baby would be enough to throw him into that mode. While you're a pandemic on, forget it. Like, he didn't stand a chance. So your husband, I'm sure whoever's listening to this who gave birth during the pandemic is like, oh my God, me too. Plus he's trapped in the murky zone with you in the house. Like, he can't even leave because of the pandemic, right? He has no outlet. You have no outlet. So for him to try to stay centered and be like, okay, she's in it. She's going through it. Is this normal? Is this not normal? This anxiety is cropping up. Like he doesn't know. So this is a common dynamic for those reasons. And does that, am I hitting it on the head? Are you like, yeah. If you're asking if my mind is blown again, it is. <laughs> because Amazing. I didn't think about it that way. It's true. Like he, he's biologically wired to hunt to make sure there's food. And yeah, the things that he did, which were so helpful, were what needed to get done. I guess what I wanted or what I needed was that more so the emotional support. And I think what I wanted to see was more him interacting with my son. Not even so much that I wanted him to help as much as I wanted him. I wanted to see their connection. And when I didn't see it, I felt so scared and worried okay so you'll be happy to know i also have an explanation for that (laughs) so let's think about the ways that the baby physically develops and how that is reflected in the attachments around the baby both from the baby externally and from external parties to the baby when a baby is born who is the baby reliant on for life the mother. And when the baby's born, how far away can the baby see? Only like what? A foot? A few, if a few inches. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And that happens to be the distance from the nipple to your eyes, mom. So your baby is looking up at you and you come into focus after a short bit of time. Initially, it's just dark and light and shadows pretty quickly as you know, the eyes come online and that part of the brain and everything's sort of starting to coordinate. And now we have vision, but it's very close. And that baby is attached to you. That baby's been in your body, hearing your heartbeat, you know, hearing your bone, your voice through your bone conduction this entire time in that jacuzzi in your tummy. And now this baby comes out and this baby wants to be on you, smelling you, because that's how they know that they're going to get fed. 
It's not because they love you more. They, they're not there yet. That's mm-hmm. okay. I'm not saying that, you know, they, whatever. You get it. But how is that baby supposed to attach to somebody that doesn't smell like exactly like you, who's not lactating? Turns out you walking around with milk in your boobs is like you walking around with chocolate cake on a platter all day. So turns out bro doesn't have any chocolate cake to offer. So you are automatically the attachment. And again, men weren't around this idea that there would be like another partner that didn't lactate that your that the baby that an infant would attach to was not a thing until very recently. Do you think almost that there's so much pressure because because that's what I felt like I felt like oh the the man needs to do skin to skin like there's a, I feel like there's almost a lot of pressure and I I wonder if that's where my disappointment came from was like everything I was reading and seeing as you mentioned this is all very recent I feel like almost in an ideal world, that's what we would want. But the truth is, it's actually not. I think if I knew that, I truthfully would have felt a lot less sad or like worried because I would have said, okay, well, it's just not, it's not normal. And I actually had a, a mom friend tell me, she said, because she her child was a little older, she said, they will start the dad will start to bond with your child when he can, when he start, my son starts to smile at him and he starts to react to him. And, and it's so true. That's when I really saw their relationship start to blossom. But in the newborn stage, just everything you said was so spot on. The nine month mark is when a lot of the baby's physical development has a huge leap and their sensory development. And they are, they start to literally look around more. They start to look away from the breast. They start to pull away from the breast. They're starting to go off of milk usually as their primary, as, as you know, their primary source of calories. They're eating a lot more solids. They don't, they're not as dependent on you. And now they're more comfortable in their bodies. Their sleep rhythms change. Now they can be awake for longer. Oh, lo and behold, guess who can hang out when they don't need to be feeding every two hours, three hours. Now they can go and do something. So these are the, these are some of the things that we need to know. And also it doesn't mean that we don't try for more and different and better. It doesn't mean we don't do skin to skin. It doesn't mean we don't expect our co-parents to co-parent quite the opposite. I actually feel, which we can talk about in a minute, but if you think about it, we're always evolving. So even though this is all new to us, it doesn't mean that it can't, that we can't grow. I mean, feminism would say that it doesn't have to be this way, right? Mm -hmm. Like we could evolve into a species that has the baby, we breastfeed, we get to work and in between feeds and whatever, you know, there are cultures that are very, very egalitarian. We look at the Scandinavian countries and there's, they have equal parental leave. They have built-in childcare models that start at 18 months for everybody or earlier. You know, you don't have to have these worries. You don't have to think about, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay for childcare to bubble up? I mean, that, that in itself is a recipe for an anxiety disorder. Forget postpartum. I have an anxiety disorder about that right now. And I, I had my last child almost four years ago. You know what I mean? Like these things are real. So it is, it's, it's, it's a, it's a symptom of a culture just as much as it is a symptom of a species, I would say. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry. I just have to digest after you say everything. So I'm like mind blown. Yeah. You're, yeah. 
Yes. I'm, I'm just cheering to myself because like, positive affirmation is my love language. Oh, good. <laughs> so, bring it on. Oh, that's okay. Awesome. So the six to eight weeks go by after birth. And as women, we've healed physically from birth. So when it comes to sex, and I think for a lot of people, six to eight weeks without sex is a pretty long time. So how can new parents navigate that territory with a baby? And here's a million dollar question. How often should a couple be having sex to maintain their connection? We'll take the the question, the, the second question first, and then we'll go back to the six to eight week question. So love it. In, in terms of the million dollar question, how often should a healthy couple be having sex to maintain that intimate connection that makes them more than just roommates? It's really unique to every single couple and really only they can answer that. And honestly, most couples probably wouldn't even be honest with each other or with each other in the room because they would fear that they would need to be held accountable or that there would be some ramification. It'd be too threatening to mm-hmm. talk about intimacy in a married couple can be very, very threatening if there's a disconnect. And frequently there is, especially I observe in relationships where people have met younger and they have, especially after they have kids, so they've met younger, they haven't had kids for a while. So they have this relationship built on a social dynamic, um, on an independence dynamic, like we spoke about before, on a certain lifestyle that may or may not have started with like partying and just like being out and about on the town and like gunning it in their careers or not, whatever. And all of a sudden, there's this huge interruption. And it goes back to the communication thing, right? So in the end, if you haven't updated your communication model since you were 22 when you met or 24, 25, and now you're 30, 34, 35 having kids, that's 10 years where everything else around you has grown up. All of the things that you're doing and all the roles you're performing have grown up, but the way you speak to each other is still like 23-year-olds, right? So before you were doing any work on yourself, before you were even thinking about that stuff. So how much each couple needs to be having sex is very unique to them. And I think that like, I will give you some numbers. People who have sex once a week are having a lot of sex as married couples with kids. That's a lot of sex. If you're having sex twice a week, I mean, you get an award. If you're regularly having sex twice a week and you have children in your home sub 10 years old, because it's still a lot of, a lot of physical work and it's exhausting. We'll, we'll just say that to start. I think that when it goes into the zone where it starts to get where there's like a resentment that builds up on either side, that starts to change. And then the other question that you asked is sort of at the core of that. Of Again, it goes back to both the, the cultural symptom and the symptom of our species, right? To assume that we've healed from birth at six to eight weeks from a first-time birth is a massive assumption. And that feels like an assumption that was made by men because... A first-time mom can very often at four weeks still be wearing a diaper themselves and can still be healing from stitches. And that's just physical. Birth is psychosomatic. Birth is an experience that requires the mind to be in certain and a certain place at, at very specific points in time over the course of pregnancy, labor, birth, and postpartum in order for the hormones that drive the body through that procreation cycle to actually fire. So it is psychosomatic in that your mind is just as much driving that process as your body, okay? Now, birth in a lot of countries is traumatic. And it's traumatic either either and, sometimes both, physically and mentally. And I truly believe that for 
those of us who come through the birth portal, if we want to get a little witchy about it, which what the hell, why not? I'm in my toddler's tent for people who don't know and are listening to this recording this. So like it has stars on it. I'm feeling the witchy vibes. Let's do it. So let's go all you, in. If you let's just go there. So if you consider that you're going through the birth birth portal and if any of anyone out there who's listening has had a natural, fully unmedicated birth, and if anyone out there has, I don't know, taken acid or tripped on mushrooms before, it turns out they're very, very similar. No, so when really? you're going through labor, yeah, you the the drugs that your brain creates to support you through that physical intensity, which we can call pain are your natural narcotics. So it's like morphine. Turns out morphine is refined heroin, right? They're made from the same core chemicals, right? You are your your natural opiates, your your dopamine, your serotonin, your oxytocin, your prolactin, all of this is kicking up, kicking up, kicking up so that it can open and open to let this baby out, okay? It makes you drowsy. makes you drowsy because that helps you cope with the intensity, right? Like these are things that are important to know because if you don't know that when you're in labor, that you feel like something's really wrong. Okay, so six to eight weeks postpartum, you've just gone through this crazy birth portal where you're a regular person on the street who has never tripped on mushrooms or done acid. And now you've just gone through this process where at the point where you're like, I need an epidural, that's because you can't, like both the mental intensity and the physical intensity are like too much, understandably. And you then have to face the prospect of, pushing a human out of your body. And in our common culture, we don't watch other people do that. And because we don't watch other people do that, we think that it's super scary and abnormal. And it, and let's just even use the word impossible, right? Yeah. Especially with C-section rates are what they are. We literally think it's possible. It's like borderline impossible. So now you're recovering, not just from physical trauma, but even if you've had a really straightforward birth, you're also having to process your birth experience. And we don't even have places to do that. Cool. You do your new mom circle. Everyone's obsessing over the color of their baby's poop and, you know, complaining about their partners and whatever. And really what a big part of what everyone wants to be doing the whole time everyone's talking about their babies is talking about their birth experience. And like, oh my God, was that not the craziest thing? Even, it doesn't matter if you had a C-section, an epidural, a 500 hour labor, a one hour labor, a home birth, a hospital birth, it's still a totally insane experience. So when you then say to somebody, cool, and now we're gonna put a penis in it. You're like, wait, I'm sorry. I'm still working on what just went down, which may or may not include a significant amount of stitches, which may or may not include a pelvic floor that is not toned yet and doesn't really feel much. That's good. And maybe feels things that are really uncomfortable. There's fear around it. There's all these, there are all these things happening in the mix, right? Whereas if you were to, to instead have an intimate connection that wasn't about number one, penetrative sex and not about nipples because nipples are, are no go zone for most women postpartum. If you were to have, figure out other ways of connecting and till and just be super open and cool about it and not put pressure on her. And if she were able to feel comfortable that she wouldn't need to do any touching because she's touched out. She's touching a baby all day, you know, then, and you can process with your partner and your partner's there for that moment, or you can go to a therapist to process it or have some good friends or whatever, re a mom group, something that is going to probably put you in a better position to actually have sex sooner. So I would say that really women are, are ready to have like great sex again when they're done breastfeeding. That's real. When you're done breastfeeding, your hormones change so dramatically. 
when you are breastfeeding, you need to not get pregnant again, because when you get pregnant again, it will usually reduce your milk supply significantly. So your body will tell you to not get pregnant again while you're sustaining this other baby's life. So in what reality is your body driving you towards sex? That's very rare. Sure. Yes. Does it happen? Of course. There's like the random super horny six week postpartum chick, like for sure. <laughs> but it's very, very rare, especially with first time mom. So that. Now, I would say that 12 weeks is usually when women have a bit more mental clarity. They, the baby goes through a huge developmental stage then where they're more in, where they're less dependent. And she has more mental and emotional space for that. She will also be significantly more healed at that point. So I think that realistically, we're talking about 12 weeks. And if you can't masturbate a few times in the interim, then I don't know what to tell you to a partner who is the non-birth partner. I have no advice for that. <laughs> yeah, Figure I think, out. you know, actually, I just I was listening to an episode on Esther Perel's podcast. It was about pornography, basically. I think that was like the root of the issues. But it's, in, yeah, the whole topic of masturbation is so interesting. And I, I almost wish that we would normalize it because I, I'm glad to see you shaking your head because it, it does. It feels like a taboo topic. But I think especially for men, like it's during that time. Yeah, it's nice to have less pressure on the woman to perform certain things that she's just truthfully not ready to do. And I had sex. We had sex while I was still breastfeeding or around the end stages. And it was good. But I was also like in the, it was hard to be in the moment because I'm like worried about, uh, are my nipples leaking on him? Like, that's not very sexy. Like there's, you don't really feel like your sexiest at that time. So yeah, I mean, it's a rare, it's a rare mainstream couple who can get like excited about lactation sex. You know what I mean? And so it's not to say that you shouldn't have it. It's not to say that you shouldn't be having all sorts of physical intimacy and sex besides just intercourse but i but the 12 the the end of breastfeeding is where your hormones will change your vaginal tissue changes when your hormones change it will become less it will become less sensitive and sex will feel better when you're done breastfeeding your scar tissue won't be as sensitive there are all of these things that shift that are physiologic and if you can understand that and not feel like there's something wrong with you and not pressure on the relationship because that head trip is so bad for sex the other thing that's really bad for sex for libido is resentment Mm. so when foreplay so if there was a different love language before, really the love language now is acts of service. That is what a postpartum woman, a woman who is, has young children, acts of service. If my husband empties the dishwasher, nothing is going to make me more attracted to him than him spontaneously, without me asking, observing some task that is usually on my plate and taking care of it and not, not pointing it out, not asking for a thank you, not acting like a hero, doing it, of course I notice. Are you kidding me? Like there's no faster conduit to like a sexual interaction than some household thing or child care thing getting done without me needing to orchestrate it. My mental overhead frees up. When my mental overhead frees up, I now have room to be in myself. That is a hugely important thing, but that need that requires communication and it requires giving on both sides because a woman can't give if she is not being given to, right? So it goes both ways. I love that. I just love how real you put that. Like it sounds silly, like emptying the dishwasher. Yeah. 
it's amazing. Or anything, like you mentioned, that frees up the mental load. Because women, I would say like a lot of moms, a lot of women do, I, I keep touching my forehead as if it's like literally, oh, here's my mental load. But it's true. It's like the nap schedule, right? The feeding schedule, the if if you have childcare, it's do they need diapers? Do they need what? It's literally a thousand million th- or oh, he has a stuffy nose. Is he sick or is he teething? Should I take his temperature? There's literally, it's like you could draw a web. So yes, if your partner, actually this literally happened just now, my son has a stuffy nose. My husband put him to bed and I had to be the one to be like, did you turn on the humidifier? Just so you know, when he has a stuffy nose, please remember to turn on the humidifier. But even though it's so simple, it's like I, women, I or I don't want to generalize, but I would say for me, I don't want to have to ask because I feel like I'm always managing. Like I already have my day job where I'm like managing things. Like I, I just want to not be a manager for a second. <laughs> Turns out being in a co-working relationship with your partner at home is not sexy. That's not intimate. That is management. And it's exhausting. And it doesn't leave room for magic and for sensuality. It doesn't leave room for spontaneity when you're just a logistics operation. So with that in mind, it also means that you need to think about other ways that you can disconnect from now and move into the next phase. Does that, is that, a hobby you guys take up together is that usually these days it'll be like a show you watch. They're like, do you start playing backgammon regularly? Do you start, you know, it's summertime. Like, do you get a cornhole set in the backyard and start playing every night after your kid goes to bed and, and drinking a beer together and being like, cool. It's like, it's like, you know, what is going to be, what is the ritual that's going to be your new thing that you do since now your social calendar isn't super full with all of these things you used to be able to do. And because you're too tired to sit down and have super interesting conversations all the time, but you can do something cool that will remind, that will bring you out of this logistics operation and into something simple, fun, great. Some people, you know, it'll help to like have a glass of wine or something like that. Sometimes it'll help people to schedule sex. And so they know they can prepare for it. And then any kind of like foreplay that can be done, not physically, can also be helpful. So text met like, like sexy, dirty text messages ahead of time, or even just suggestive text messages. Like that's really fun, especially if you're in the same room and your kids in the same room. That's amazing. Looking at each other, like (laughs) being naughty, like that's so fun. You know what I mean? And it's not gross. It's, you're still two adults living together yes. trying to potentially procreate again. So you got to get there somehow. You know what I mean? So I think that for some people, THC and CBD can be really helpful. I think that for a lot of couples, the release, if, if um, THC doesn't make you paranoid or you know anxious, then it can be really helpful to, ha- to help people kind of disconnect and feel more into their bodies, especially Indica versus Sativa, which Sativa is a bit more of a, like gets the mind going and Dika kind of puts you in your body. So those would be some chemical tools that you could use that I think could be really helpful and also can feel kind of fun and different and like, whoa, like look at us doing this thing that we wouldn't normally do, you know? (laughs) I give you permission here to do that. If that's what you need, I give you permission to do that. So yeah, those are my, those are my sexuality in parenting tips. Make sure that you're serving each other in the ways that need to be served. Focus on your communication. I'm going to recommend a couple books right now. Number one is Difficult Conversations. So Difficult Conversations is an old book. There are some things in there that have not aged very well. Some examples of things. For my for your listeners, they will understand when they read it and they're like, 
Oh, that's weird. I Okay. But we don't even need to go into it. The point really is that it's a great primer on something that's called nonviolent communication. And that is really just a way of communicating that centers needs and feelings instead of projection and blame and defensiveness. So you saying, babe, when you did that thing, it really made me feel like this, which then made me act like that, which is why I snapped at you. And I'm really sorry I snapped at you. If you done it this other way, I think that like, honestly, it just, it would, it would be a lot smoother. And I just realized that. Or I, when I, when you, this isn't, has actually happened IRL in this house. <laughs> when you let me sleep in, I'm really appreciative. But then when I wake up and you haven't woken me up and I didn't know I was going to be sleeping in and you haven't gotten the kids dressed or fed. And now we have to leave in 10 minutes to go to something that like we have a deadline that actually is just really stressful. And I would rather have just been awake an hour and a half earlier instead of being like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like, and you're just berating him instead of pointing it out. And that centers the needs of, of the family, of yourself. Instead of saying, when you do this, it's more like, this is how this impacts everyone here, including myself. So maybe we can work on that. So difficult conversations is a good one. And again, the fourth trimester is also a great book. I will definitely link those in the show notes. And while we're on the subject of books, I absolutely love the title of your new book, You Got This. Tell us more about it. You've Got This is a, it can be a standalone book or a companion to the birth deck, which was my first publication. And You've Got This is a full guide to comfort and labor and to, you know, the, the subtitle is your guide to getting comfortable with labor. And it's written to both the support partner and to the, the mom, the birthing person. And so the vision of the book and the, the way that it's formatted is to take you through an entire course from foundational concepts all the way to the end to resources and to uh, appendices that have like an appendix that has all of these suggestions of how you can combine techniques, et cetera. And so it, the foundational concepts have a lot to do with what we've been talking about today, which would be, you know, how do your hormones impact the way that labor flows? How are birth outcomes dependent on your mental state and how can you impact your mental state so that's really what the book teaches there are birth stories there are activities that you and your partner can do and full descriptions of a lot more information on each one of the comfort techniques that we lay out very simply in the birth deck would you be willing to read us an excerpt of your new book i would be honored this is the first time i'm doing this i'm really excited Yay! I was so Thank excited. you. I'm so honored. So I'm going to read from the support category. So there are four categories in the book. And the four categories are support, movement, massage, and mind. And the support category are really the foundational tools that support the overall birth experience. And this is the intro to that page. And it feels relevant to this conversation. So keeping in mind, this is for labor, but this can absolutely be applied to postpartum as well. Dear support person, your role is simple. Bring your awareness solely to the needs of the laboring woman without distraction. If she's cold, make her warm. If she's working hard, give her water. If she's panting, help her breathe slowly. 
Assuming some responsibility for birth preparation will increase mama's trust, thereby increasing oxytocin. That's the on switch for labor. Try to predict her needs before she is even aware of them and plan for your own needs, like food, a change of clothing, and your own hydration. The upcoming pages will guide you through thoughtfully packing your toolkit for birth. Page by page, you will learn how to use these effective support tools, many of which you probably already own. Through support, thorough support includes more than just objects and thoughtful gestures. Support includes the most fundamental elements of a healthy labor, hydration and breathing. I'll teach you my foolproof breathing exercises for labor and the importance of a water bottle. Additionally, you will learn how to use a tone of mama's voice to reduce adrenaline, the oldest trick in the book. Remember, all you need is your hands, your heart, and a few simple skills to provide hours of comfort and labor. I love that. I feel like that is definitely synonymous, is that the right word, with our conversation. I think so too. It was hard to pick because there's so many sort of little tidbits because it's really written to be something that teaches you guys, teaches, you know, the couple how to communicate with each other around difficult things and how to learn about each other's and express needs. And so, yeah, it was hard to pick because there's a lot of stuff like that. I'm flipping through it right now. Do you want to read another really, one? Really of course I do. Yay. I never asked. I'm going to read about primal brain. Oh, let's Birth do it. Birth is all about, I know, I love it. There are three foundational concepts in the, or four, sorry. So I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll give the four primary concepts. So primal brain, distraction, labors on and off switch, oxytocin and adrenaline and the contraction cycle. So these all build on each other and they are the framework for the explanation of why comfort measures really work and they're not just like hippie shit. Primal brain, birth is all about the senses. How you perceive your surrounding environment during labor will have a physical impact on your birth experience and can even impact your birth outcomes. To understand this connection, you need to go back to our primal human days before modern technology. Humans were giving birth long before we lived in houses with locking doors and windows. We evolved to birth in the safety of nighttime when predatory animals and other an- and other humans were usually sleeping. Accordingly, the hormones of our labor heighten our senses so we can take in all the safety information available in our environment through sight, smell, taste, touch, and sound. Moreover, our pupils dilate so we're extra sensitive to light. Likewise, we're sensitive to smells, reactive to tastes, picky about how we're being touched and hypersensitive to the sounds we're hearing. In labor, we are using our super strong senses to detect anything that could pose a threat to ourselves and this youngling we are about to release from the safety of our bodies into the world. Even though modern civilization poses very few threats compared to our primal days, we're still on high alert and our senses continue to play a hugely important role in the course of our labors. And then it goes on to talk about distraction and using trust and fear to help, you know, using trust and building trust to help actually impact the course of labor and then the contraction cycle and why we even have pain at all i'm hooked i am even though i i mean even though i i gave birth already i'm gonna give birth again at some point so this book would be super relevant and it makes a great gift I can already, I already know a few ladies in my life that I'm going to gift this to. So, okay, where will your books be sold and where can we all get a copy? 
So they're um, available for pre-sale right now anywhere where books are sold. So that includes Amazon. You can shop small to uh, small independent bookstores at bookshop.org. And you can also buy it on my website, which is thebirthdeck.com. And so the book is, is like a whole experience. It's 144 pages, but it's richly illustrated. There are over 150 illustrations, so it's not all words. Yeah, it's it's amazing. My illustrator, Brittany Mash, is the most talented. I'm in love with her. And then the deck is like the perfect hospital bag, birth bag tool. You bring it, it's your flashcards. You'll have it all right at your fingertips. So it's a great, all of them are great gifts. And I'm just excited to give more in-depth information to people. It will be releasing on June 22nd. It's great for your first birth, your second, your third. And especially if you're processing, because something that happens is we kind of forget about labor and then we get pregnant again. And we're like, oh God, (laughs) not again. Now I know too much. And so (laughs) it's actually helpful at that time to go and read something like this so that you can start to make sense of what happened the first time. Yeah, I it's so funny that you mentioned that because I do look back on it and I do reminisce on birth. Like it's so weird. Like I do think about it and I I wish I could have I really wish I taped it just so because you're so out of body during that process that I wish I could rewatch it like from a so I could see what it I don't know. You get what I'm saying. But Oh, I totally get what you're kidding me. I'm like the the friend you don't want to have. None of my friends are, none of my best friends are birth workers. And I was like sending them birth videos. They're like, I can't watch this on the subway. What's wrong with you? You know what? You sh- we should normalize that. I really, Just saying. I really do think like, I know this is a totally separate topic and I promise we'll wrap up, but I really do think there is such a lack of education around birth for young women. I'm not saying that like your eighth grader needs to watch birth happen, but why don't we ever touch women's health? Like, I just don't (sighs) under, you know what I mean? Like there's no, you really have to dig for information. Like it's definitely not served to you. No, no, it is not served to you. It is, it is, I mean, it's only very recent that research was even done on women at all medical procedures, medication was not tested on women for a very long time. So we were, so even though, I forget exactly what the, what the statistic is, but I think it was that even though men were more likely to suffer from heart attacks, women were more likely to die from them or something because women didn't know they were having them because no one had ever researched what a heart attack in a woman presents like and the symptoms are completely different than for men so wow. for decades they were like you're gonna have a pain in you know your arm and then yeah. and then your chest and then blah, blah, blah. and that's actually not <laughs> for women at all so women couldn't identify it and i laugh because it's so ridiculous so obvious but you know when you don't have power that means no one's really that excited about giving you money to do anything with it like right medical research but it's okay. We don't need to burn down the whole building right now. I know. It's I too know. late at night. I got to drink a beer before we do that. Come on. I know. Separate topic for maybe another book. <laughs> exactly. I have like another, another book, another podcast. I have to wait till I'm like old and don't care anymore about what people think of me. And then I can burn it all down. <laughs> um, I'll be right there with you. I want to, I want to be the like old lady, like burning down, like kill shelters. Like that's what, and like saving all the dogs. That's what I want to be. Anyway. I got you. I'm so supportive of that. Sarah, I have no words for how much I enjoyed our conversation and how much I learned. So thank you. And 
If someone wanted to connect with you after listening to this episode, where can they find you? I have been super digging Clubhouse. Me and I too. do amazing. We have to connect there because I had to do conversations like this all the time about women's health, hormones, relationships. There's a really cool club called Not Safe for Mom Group that is actually not mine. So it's a, I'm not even like plugging myself, but I actually do co-moderate a Monday night mom's talk. That's super, super fun. And all your listeners should join. It's from 9 to 10 p.m. East Coast time every Monday night. Not safe for mom group. It's called Side Parts and Skinny Jeans. And it's just a room. Wait, I think I know this room. I haven't joined it, but I saw it pop up in my clubhouse. And I was like, oh, that's a cool name for a club. Yeah, it is. I co-moderate that. It's a really fun room. And it's also, it's not just, I mean, last time we got into, you know, racism against Asians and the violence that's being caused, not just physically, but socially within Mm -hmm. families and within friendships. And so it's, and then also we're like, I'll have a glass of wine in hand and we're all talking about, you know, The Bachelor too. (gasps) So it goes in in a lot of different directions. Anyways, so there's that. So Clubhouse that room is Monday nights and that's just casual fun times, birth specific stuff. You can follow me at the birth deck on Instagram and at glow birth and body. So I'm also the owner of a prenatal and postpartum deep tissue massage therapy practice that has been around since 2010. And we exist as a brick and mortar in Oakland, California, and we're opening in Chicago May. And I'm so excited. I just gave job offers today to the therapist. And they're unbelievable. These massage therapists blew my mind. I literally hired five out of the five that I interviewed. I'm obsessed <laughs> with them, which is unheard of ratio. So come visit us at Glow Birth and Body. You're going to get the best deep tissue, prenatal massage, postpartum massage, everyday massage of your life. And then follow me on Instagram and we can just hang out and chat and talk. I love that. I will link everything in the show notes and I will definitely ping people into your group that you yes that you co-moderate i'm really excited about it i've been loving clubhouse too i love it so it's a great it's a great forum for learning and for networking and just for being in an intellectual space yes for sure fresh air in the social environment my word yes well thank you everyone for listening and catch us next week for the next episode joining us this week on the new mamas podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did be sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite listening platform have a friend that would like this podcast share the love stay in touch definitely give us a follow on instagram at new mamas podcast i'd also love to continue the conversation with you on my personal account so let's be friends slide into my dms at lena forestal finally be sure to check out my blog at lenaforestal.com for all things motherhood, homesteading, and recipes that both you and baby will love. Thanks again, and stay tuned for next week's episode.